Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and congratulations for tuning your dials to Bugle FM. Later this hour, it's a classic from Herman's Hermits. But first, here's the weather. We- oh, shit. Sorry, sorry this, is the, this is the wrong outlet. What, this is the podcast version we're recording now, my mistake. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 4034 of the Bugle, audio newspaper for a world unashamed of its own ceaseless visuality. I am Andy Zaltzman, and I can now officially confirm... I am not the subject of the Carly Simon song, You're So Vain. I would just like to quell that rumour right away. Nor have I ever been the inspiration and muse of Pablo Picasso. So if anyone has told you otherwise, I can only apologise. I'm in London, as is so often the case, that can't be coincidence. And joining me from the madcap metropolis of Mumbai, the home of the car horn honking cacophony, that is a very satisfying collection of words to say, it's the Bugle's official representative of the continent of Asia, Anuvab Pal. Hello, Andy. Hello. How is Asia as a continent? Well, you know, it's it's still in the same place, I'm happy to report. Uh, Regardless of what you may have heard, it hasn't moved. I know we live in a post-fact world. You may have seen social media clips that India is now closer to China. Qatar has ceased to exist. But none of these things are true. Geographically, tectonically speaking, everything is still in the same place, Andy. As always, a section of the Bugle is going straight in the bin. Uh, this week, uh, we review the latest self-help guidebooks for low achievers, uh, including the latest from Dr. Vermin Tardretti. A book entitled Find Your Plateau, which guides you down the path to acceptance of your own limitations. Reviewed as, quote, (laughs) gloriously uninspiring, five stars from Career Mediocrity magazine. We also look at Brenda Clanche's Snooze Hymn of the Koala Mum, a low-octane parenting handbook to save you time, effort, energy, frustration and disappointment, given that realistically your child is probably going to be pretty ordinary anyway. So kick back and enjoy the ride. Leashing Your Inner Self. This is a terrific day-by-day handbook by the British Institute of the Safely Mundane, helping you avoid the heartbreak of unfulfilled life goals by learning to suppress your true ambitions. That's a follow-up, of course, to the disappointingly best-selling Aim Low, Don't Grow. And uh, also we look at (laughs) cloud-watching through the glass ceiling, How Life is Simpler When You Don't Give a Shit, by former security guard and janitor Ian Blard. It's an autobiographical blueprint for a numbingly unremarkable life. That section is in the bin. And also in the bin this week, well, we've had a heat wave here in Britain. Uh, I imagine, Anuvar, by comparison with the basically permanent heat wave that is that is Mumbai, you're, you're probably not that impressed with our, our 33 degree temperatures. But to get any British buglers through the heat wave, we have some free cold thoughts to cool you down. A penguin eating a packet of frozen fish fingers in a bobsled. Polar bears playing musical statues at the Kamchatka Winter Festival of Outdoor Ambient Jazz. The soul of Theresa May. (laughs) That section, also in the bin. Today's top story, Andy, and, you know, every time we talk, there's always Indian news because there's never a shortage of some sort of lunacy where, where I'm from. Um, if you remember, we talked about a mad judge. We talked about an Indian high court judge uh, who'd gone mad and uh, he issued an arrest warrant on a bunch of Supreme Court judges who'd issued an arrest warrant on him. 
Um, he'd gone into hiding for a, for a few months, and I'm happy to report that he has been found. And the and and I just want to know what your views are on this, just legally as well, because when he was found, and the police, the special branch of police, uh, they're known as the CBI in India, the Central Bureau of Investigation. You know, when they caught him, he immediately issued an arrest warrant on them, which <laughs> confused them immensely because they did not. They had an alternative legal warrant in their hand. And, 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 you know, as a, as a student of law and jurisprudence, Andy, I just wanted to know what this does to legal matters generally when you go to arrest a judge and he arrests you in turn. <laughs> well, I mean, that's... You've got to admire the imagination he's, he's put into that. So just... I mean, I, I don't know if yes. it would work if you're not a high court judge. Uh, I mean, can, can, can you just put on a, a judge's wig and, and wield that authority and say, no, I'm, no, I'm having you arrested? I mean, it's quite kind of playground-level response, isn't it? Oh, you're arresting me? No, yeah. I'm arresting you. And then, I don't know, jump off the ground and so you're safe. I mean, this to me, it seems this is the kind of chaos that the watching world expects from India. Justice Carnan, who uh, we Correct. talked about a few weeks ago, um, he described the Contempt of Courts Act as, quotes, a cathartic jurisprudence which belonged to the Dark Ages, the era of inquisition and torture, distinct from the classical Roman law which constitutes the foundation of modern jurisprudence. And, I mean, that's, that is, I mean, that, again, that is the kind of language that you want from a high-level legal executive. Precisely, Andy, precisely. In fact, it took them six weeks to understand what he was saying before they could <laughs> arrest him, because the English language is not as prevalent in the lower orders of the security forces as it is among high court judges. Um, and however, I, the point you raise is a very valid point, because what differentiates just madness, you know, which is a man with a wig and a gavel just pronouncing sentences, and a mad judge, you know, <laughs> who sets up his own court in his house. There is nuance here, Andy. There is nuance. And an interesting angle on this is that whilst he was in hiding, he retired. Um, so yes. he, re he reached retirement age, and he became, and I, I quote an Indian newspaper here, the first judge of a high court to retire whilst being untraceable. Now, that is an, an unsurprising record <laughs> to have set. That is a small crossover in the Venn diagram of judges. Of course, there are many judges, not so many high court judges, but very few of them have ever been untraceable. And also, no judge who is untraceable would give that up voluntarily, surely. So if you are untraceable, you're not going to retire. I mean, he's been forcibly retired because he turned 62. But, I mean, the untraceable judge, surely that is, I mean, that's the, what all judges dream of, isn't it? That's that is a dream. That is a dream, you know, and and often you don't have that intersection as you correctly pointed out Harrison Ford has, has made a movie called fugitive. He has not made a movie called fugitive judge right? <laughs> Because I feel like that intersection is not often met and I'm proud to be from a nation where such things do meet You know, you can be an absconder and a man who can pronounce the death penalty all in one, you know? Yes, we've got a billion people, but sometimes we know how to multitask. That's all I'm trying to get at, Andy. In other Indian news now, the uh, Ayush Ministry, which promotes a traditional and alternative medicine, has issued some uh, wonderful advice to pregnant uh, women, telling them to avoid meat, eggs, and impure thoughts. Now... 
you might think uh, with pregnancy, um, eggs and meat and impure thoughts of sorts have obviously been the, the start of the matter. The advice listed various things to be avoided, including tea, coffee, sugar, uh, spices, uh, and eggs, and non-veg food. I mean, India does have a pretty proud record of malnutrition in expectant mothers, so I guess we need to see it in the context of that. But this is in direct contravention of the advice from the Indian Health Ministry, which has meat and eggs pretty much top of its list of recommended foods. So, I mean... I guess in a, in a nation of, what, 1.2 billion people, you're, you're going to have bits of advice that contradict each other, but there must be some pretty confused pregnant women in India right now. That is correct, Andy. That is correct. And, and also, you know, we are the first nation to classify impure thoughts as an edible product. <laughs> so I think that that's... One of the basic things that you have that I have a problem with with the Western world is that you differentiate between adverbs and names of food products. <laughs> this is the problem, you know. Why can't you not eat a tomato and a whimsy? It's like that. You know, we, we are more flexible with the English language here, Andy. And this is why I think we're so far advanced, you know. That is, we only have to catch up with China and that's it. You know, because we've got... We've got Pure thoughts and meat, and I don't know how it is for you. Meat and eggs for me are pure thoughts, you know. And in a, in a, in, I, I, I have pure thoughts when I eat them. And any other kind of food, impure thoughts, and we, we classify them together, you know. And, and that's why we like to be flexible with the English language, you know. When we say something like, you know, when you're going to school, avoid being hit by cars and bad opinions. You know, we like to say things like that. <laughs> the advice also said women should detach themselves from desire anger, attachment. So you have to detach yourself from attachment. I mean, that's linguistically interesting uh, at the best of times anyway. But also, surely, attachment is something you want to practice while you're preparing to have a baby. Uh, also says you should detach yourself from hateredness, which is just a new word. That has, that has just been invented. Hateredness. I, d- I don't know if that means Correct. feelings of hate or being hated by something or just something completely different. Uh, it could be hatteridness. Uh, maybe don't wear red hats. I mean, very, very dangerous to be a pope whilst president. That that is absolutely, absolutely a fact. And detach <laughs> yourself from lust, which is very much shooting the horse after the door has bolted. Now, is it possible, Anuvab? Uh, now I've been to India, I think four times. Is it possible to yes, find sir. peaceful condition anywhere? In India, it is not, which is why I think what they're saying is leave the country, <laughs> right? Find good people. They don't even have to be your family. So by default, you are detached. So what they're saying is give birth in Taiwan, give birth in Russia, anywhere but here. <laughs> Find good people. I think there's a coded, almost KGB type message here. If you want to bring in a new life, don't do it here. We've got a lot of people. Now we can't say that directly, Andy. You understand. <laughs> so we as Indians. This is why India, English is an Indian language. We have invented an English under your English, and we call it English as well, <laughs> but it's not English. You see where I'm coming from. The, uh, the, the booklet uh, also said, and this is, I think, my favourite bit of it. During pregnancy, uh, women uh, should read the life histories of great personalities. <laughs> I don't know if, you know, I know parents, you know, listen to music during pregnancy... Um, to try and you know stimulate the brains of, of of the the babies within them. I know my children. I was exposing them to the greatest hits of Banana Armor from uh, well shortly before conception. Um, uh, but reading the life history of great person, are they going to osmose 
the wisdom of the ages from their their mother reading reading these books. I, I, there must be some amazing conversations going on in India at the moment. How's your morning sickness? Well, it was awful until I started reading Henry F. Pringle's 1932 Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Theodore Roosevelt, and now I feel absolutely sensational. <laughs> Good, so you're hoping for a, for a natural birth? Yup, no, no painkillers, no surgical equipment, nothing. Going for the full caesarean. By which I mean I'll be reading Suetonius's second-century AD masterpiece, De Vita Caesarum, The Lives of the Caesars, in the original Latin. I don't want to take any chances. Awesome advice. Again, Andy, great, great advice, great advice. And again, I don't know how you do it in the West, but, you know, when my son was born, the months before it, it was critical... It was critical for my wife to read Plautus, the Misunderstood Teen Years. <laughs> Without that, we would not speak, and I promise not to pay for my son's education. I think it was critical, state-mandated, <laughs> that we had to read, you know, Alexander, the years making music videos. Though that was critical for us to have, you know, Kafka, the goalkeeping years. Now, those things <laughs> were given to us by the state and we had to read it and and you know it was it was mandatory in my house you know and and you know we 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 nearly came close to divorce because you know my wife would want to read other things and other books and that's not allowed in those months it's not allowed by the state well i i'm, I'm starting to regret now that well i i have two children and during neither pregnancy did uh, did i or or my wife sit down and and read you know biographies of of the world's leading people. And, I mean, let's look at the evidence. My kids are 10 and 8 now. Between them, absolutely zero Nobel Prizes. So, I mean, clearly <laughs> India is onto something here. I, 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 would, uh, I would, you know, introduce my son to you, but right now he is playing the third opera of Mozart at four. <laughs> so <laughs> he's a bit tied up as we speak because he's in the middle of Cossi Fan Tutti Quarto 2. <laughs> Britain News Now, and I'm here in London, the city where the breath of Brexit splutters forth from confused lung. As we record, Britain is hammering out a deal whereby under Europe and the UK will divorce. The question is, are we going to try and keep some kind of official friends with benefit status uh, with Europe, or is it just going to be occasional in informal things behind the back of a bike shed? We just don't know. We don't know yet. Uh, today, as we record, 23rd of June, and we've had one year to the day since 23rd of June last year. Or, uh, if you're listening to this uh, in, uh, in America, June the 23rd, 2016. That was the day when Britain <laughs> went to vote in a Brexit referendum. And I think, fundamentally, the situation we found ourselves in was this. Britain was on an aeroplane, and... We weren't happy on the aeroplane. We started hearing some noises from the engines. They may or may not have been problems with those engines. And we had a vote in Britain over what to do. And we voted by 52% to 48% to jump out of that aeroplane, uh, excluding the uh, about 30% of people who were still watching their in-flight movies and, and didn't take part. But we voted to jump out of the aeroplane. <laughs> and now... We are jumping out of this aeroplane, Anivab, whether we like it or not. We've made that decision and we have to respect that decision. And what we need to do as a nation now is come together and work out how the f*** to make a parachute. That is the most important thing to do when you've jumped out of an aeroplane. The world is looking at this and they're a little confused. And they're confused for a couple of reasons, Andy. Well, the first of all, it just seems like 
when all, they said that, that somehow when the Brexit happened, it was a revenge of people of a certain age, right? And now uh, they're saying that this election is a revenge of the young. And it's seeming to us that, that, that for whatever reason, you did not allow the old and the young to vote at the same time. <laughs> it seems like the old people went and then the young people went. And it's, it's quite confusing that through this process, it seems to the world that yes, you all said that, you, know, you wanted to leave Europe and now people are saying you want to stay in Europe and then everybody in the, in the past did not like this gentleman, Jeremy Corbyn, even though I think he has a, he's a fine beard, he's a fine, very distinguished, very medical looking gentleman, uh, beard. And, and I, I would, if he did open heart surgery on me, I would trust him. <laughs> you know, he's a trust, trustworthy figure. Um, and it seems like now all that's come out of this is you wanted to remain in Brexit, but one great song about Jeremy Corbyn that people seem to be singing, that your young people are singing at concerts. It seems there was one benefit out of this. At least a piece of art has come out of it. Would you agree, Andy? Um, well, I don't know whether... Uh, it's a bit early to say whether any benefits have come out of anything in British politics over the last, last couple of years. Um, it's a very interesting position now with Brexit. As you say... It did appear to be something of an intergenerational prank, the Brexit vote. Um, and, I mean, there is one suggestion that what we could do is just pretend that we're leaving the European Union for all the old people who really wanted it and, you know, just you know, send them little newsletters saying, yeah, we're out now, and, and, and they'll be happy because, you know, politics is 99% psychological. We know that. Donald Tusk, president of the European Council, 537,000 Twitter followers. Take that, Theresa May. It's really not going well. He uh, kind of <laughs> vaguely raised the prospect of the UK staying in. And to me, this sounds like the ideal solution for both sides of the Brexit debate here in Britain, Anivab, because uh, most people who are in favour of remaining are still, I think, essentially philosophically in favour of remaining, albeit they accept the result of the referendum and are, you know, through gritted teeth, acknowledging that the will of the people, whatever the f*** that is, has to be seen through. Whereas most leavers are facing up to an aching void of not being able to blame Europe for absolutely f***ing everything, from all bananas now having to be spherical and orange, or I mean, they might be oranges, but it's probably something to do with Brussels, to British employers undercutting their own workforces, to not being able to dunk witches in ponds anymore because of EU fishing quotas. So it's, if you, we reverse this decision, not only will the Remainers be happy, I think most leavers... They will, they, they will have their raison d'etre back. We just need to be in this permanent state of campaigning to leave the EU. I think that is the equilibrium that we need in this nation. Andy, you know, I think one of the fundamental problems is a, is a literate electorate voting base. You know, you've given too much education to your people. This is a problem. And, and I'd, I'd like to refer to a very specific local election uh, at a town near where I was born up in Darjeeling, which was actually a British cantonment town for a long time. They had recent elections, and a gentleman was campaigning on a mandate of infrastructure because he had built schools and hospitals and all of that. And he was campaigning, and nobody was interested. And his rival was not a politician. He was a local footballer. And he came into that same crowd of 100,000 people, balanced a ball on his head, did his signature header, and won by $50,000. <laughs> and I think... <laughs> The fundamental problem is that your people can read and write, and that, that, is, that is what is getting in the way of all good decision-making. Right. I mean, that's, to be honest, still quite a long way ahead of what happened in America last November, I think. So, um, <laughs> Theresa May said uh, that in the negotiations she would be raising important issues, including how Europe can work together to stop the spread of extremism online. I mean, 
I mean, if only there was some kind of supranational European organisation that, that that we could be part of that would help with help with these the, 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 these things. What the f have we done, Britain? What the f have we done? Uh, Tusk uh, said that. Um, he said, I mean, he, he seems to be very keen on Britain staying in. He said, who knows? You might say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Quoting, uh, quoting uh, John Lennon, uh, of course. I mean, he's not the only one. He's got thousands of other dreamers doing all the paperwork and the admin for him. There's so much bureaucracy in Europe. Even the dreams. Even the dreams have bureaucracy behind them these days. In other British politics news, uh, we had the uh, the Queen's speech at the the start of uh, uh, each Parliament. The Queen lays out the government's action, not our own words, of course. But the most exciting thing about it uh, this year was that uh, the Queen's crown got its own wheels. Um, the crown went in a separate car to Parliament. I don't. Know, I've not noticed this before. We have covered the charmingly anachronistic traditional nonsensicalisms of uh, the Queen's speech and the state opening of Parliament on this audio newspaper before. But I've not noticed the Crown getting its... I mean, we are a nation which has nurses relying on food banks for foods. We have thousands of people living on the streets, children going to school unfed, and we put a f***ing hat in a limousine. Priorities, Britain! Priorities! I mean, why, for a start, why is the Queen not wearing the hat? I mean, that is a great concern. The Queen should... I mean, there are rumours that she ripped a neck muscle in rehearsals for her annual secret performance in the cast of Dirty Dancing, the musical. Uh, no one puts Lizzie in the corner. Um, and uh, the, the Conservatives, they had to drop a lot of their manifesto pledges, including um, uh, their promise to have a new vote on fox hunting, on re-legalising uh, fox hunting. I'm very worried about this. has been dropped now. Uh, worried about all these swarms of contraband foxes roaming the countryside unhunted. Now the thin red line of aristocrats on horses with massive packs of dogs. Uh, will not be holding them back anymore. It's a uh, deep, deep concern. Well, Andy, there is a history to this, very quickly. There is a history to this. There were, during the Indian summer, you know, you did move the entire capital to a hill station. <laughs> so I would, I would imagine that the crown is part of that tradition, you know? I mean, you move chairs and people and entire courts up to hill station because it was, to be honest, really hot. And it's not a benefit we have now because the public would shout and scream. So I think I think that the crown deserving its own car, its own cushion, and its own journey is only fair. So I, th I, I didn't know. So we moved the whole capital to what was the what was the hill station? Well, the town was called Shimla, right. and I think uh, one fine day. Well, you moved the capital a couple of times because in 1911 we've talked about this on this podcast. Yeah, Calcutta was the capital, and then I think the, the, the things. Fair enough, you said you know we don't like the Bengalis anymore, so we're going to move it to Delhi. It was quite central, and and I think that the before you there were the Mughal emperors, and 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 you know they were there for 500 years. And you moved it, and you, it took 500 years for the British Governor General to figure out that they were right in the first place, <laughs> that Delhi was quite central. So, so I think after ruling the country for 200 years, they looked at the map for the first time to actually figure out what it is that they actually govern. And then they moved to Delhi. <laughs> and then they found it really hot. So, so they moved everybody up to a hill station. Right. Uh, and, and every single piece of furniture, person, court document, the, you know, the entire bureaucracy went up there. And, and climate is a very good reason to move governments, you know? I mean, the great Cengiz Khan, I think, was spent a lot of time marauding, mostly because he just did not want to die in a Eurasian steppe <laughs> with eight-month winters. 
Bugle feature section now and prisons. Now, this week's episode is part of a special Radiotopia-wide project welcoming uh, a new show into the Radiotopia family. The Ear Hustle podcast features stories of life in prison told and produced by those living it at uh, San Quentin State Prison. And in support of Ear Hustle, all Radiotopia shows have been releasing an episode in response to the theme Doing Time. And here is The Bugle's Doing Time Prisons feature section. Now, since John Oliver uh, left this show, we haven't had uh, any other Bugle co-hosts who've done a 20-stretch in the slammer. Um, Anna, have you ever spent a long time in jail? Well, you know, I, I'm just going to answer that <laughs> slightly differently. Um, there is very little difference between an actual prison and a small Mumbai apartment. <laughs> so even though I haven't, the general living conditions of any artist in a city like this is, is in fact, the architects often visit local prisons before they build our houses. <laughs> so I think that there is an aesthetic match in, in what we're looking at, Andy. I mean, the, the common complaint with prisons in Britain is, uh, we all see it in the tabloid press, prisons are like five-star hotels. And uh, when you think about it and look at the statistics, prisons are very much like five-star hotels in that they seem to be specifically designed to do everything in their power to make sure their guests come back for another stay. Because uh, we have spectacular levels of, uh, of reoffending in this country. Um, the, uh, and yet, whilst the prison population has gone up, the number of prison officers has come down. Now, on the one hand, you might think, well, that is obviously f***ing stupid. But on the other hand, you might think... Uh, uh, yeah. So I guess that the logic is to try appeal to prisoners' British sense of fair play. If you cut prison officers, cut police numbers, as the government have been doing, then we rely on our British criminals having that innate British sense of British fair play that politicians <laughs> bang on about while shamelessly benefiting from a massively unjust electoral system and giggling themselves about how much tax global corporations would have to pay if they made them pay it. And the criminals, they want to challenge Anuvab. They're not going to commit crime if there is no challenge. So this is a visionary way of sorting everything, everything out. It's really lovely and British, if, uh, you know, in how you look at the world. It's very unique, you know, because just about, as he's about to burgle a bank or a jewellery shop, he thinks, what kind of burden am I placing on the state infrastructure <laughs> by doing this? He's looking at the larger picture, <laughs> and there is a fundamental assumption that, that this criminal understands the ways of the world, and I think you're giving him a certain respect. You're giving him that understanding of global geopolitics, socioeconomics. <laughs> this is a criminal who reads The Economist and understands the burden he will place on the state. I have a slightly different question, Andy. Okay. Uh, apparently, from what I'm reading, Andy, um, from what you're telling me, that prison is somehow associated with shame and some sort of some sort of uh, guilt in the Western world. Right. Um, here, you know, from from what I've noticed from the people that have gone to prison for high corruption cases, it is actually a status symbol. Right. <laughs> if you are anyone who's anyone in the power circles in India, in politics or business, if you have not been to prison, you are probably not a contender. <laughs> and if you have not been arrested for anything below, say, a $100 million corruption <laughs> scam. We, we like to call them scams. You are no one. You are not a player. You are nobody. In fact, that's the shame. If you live at home, that's shameful <laughs> because you haven't achieved anything. If you've got to prison, that's an achievement. And there's a gentleman that, that you and I have talked about, Andy, the, the one of the... One of, uh, 
the great Indian businessman, you know, who, who found himself in prison uh, because of a Ponzi scheme. So this is uh, Subrata Roy, who has uh, amassed a fortune of over, what, 50 billion, uh, I don't know, is that dollars uh, or rupees? Let's go with both. Um, and owns <laughs> hotels around, around the world. And essentially, uh, he has set up a full office inside uh, the jail he is currently residing in to sell his hotels. So basically, as you say, from inside a maximum security prison running a property empire. This is sensational. This, this is absolutely correct, Andy. In fact, there was a Reuters story which said the court has given him 15 days to sell his five-star hotels from jail. <laughs> and I, I think that... The, he got bail. I think now he's out on bail. But right. when this was going on a few months ago, um, the, he, he actually had the, the gall to complain to the judges saying that his video conferencing facility was not strong enough and that he, <laughs> his, his calls with his investment bankers on Wall Street were dropping, which is why he could not sell the Plaza Hotel <laughs> in New York. <laughs> And without that money being returned to investors, he would not get out of jail. His other properties were, were, in, were in Grovesner Square, which I believe is in your city. So if, if you are ever passing that area, I, I've been told it's a very posh area of London, Mayfair. Uh, please note that, that the negotiation for that real estate is currently taking place in a prison in <laughs> India, inside a maximum security prison. Discussions of its refurbishment, management, curtain cleanliness is going on inside a jail. <laughs> well, I guess it's good. You know, they always say you've got to make prisoners you know, work so they can uh, you know, get ready for life back on, the, back on the outside. And surely running a massive hotel empire... I mean, that's better than sewing up mailbags or, or, or making spoons. Howard League for Penal Reform in this country is a great organisation that is trying to make our penal system, in layman's terms, grow the f*** up. And the director of campaigns at the Howard League uh, said that reducing resources while allowing the prison population to grow unchecked has created a toxic cocktail of violence, death and human misery. Now, violence, death and human misery, that is not a cocktail you want to drink on a night out, or specifically the kind of cocktail you want to drink on several hundred consecutive non-voluntary nights in. In fact, I have that cocktail uh, right here, the penal colada. Oh, my God. That, that needs a significant squeeze of lemon and a seriously distracting parasol. Oh, what the heck. Give me another one, it's the only life I know. I'll tell you what we need, though, Anivab, to solve the global problem with prisons, and that is space prisons. That's surely... Yes. I mean, it's, I know it's been suggested in certain science fiction uh, shows and books, but good luck shanking your way out of one of those, Tim Robbins. There have already been some trial schemes. Neil Armstrong, not actually an astronaut, uh, he was uh, a petty criminal... Stole a granny from a nursing home as a Christmas gift for his wife. Buzz Aldrin graffitied eyeshadow and lipstick onto the George Washington on Mount Rushmore. And Michael Collins, obviously, well, legally, different ways of looking at his actions in the struggle for Irish independence. But anyway, they all got a 10-stretch on Moon Central Penitentiary, but broke out, busted out after less than a day, and Collins, obviously in the getaway vehicle, zoomed them back to Earth. More recently, Tim Peake, uh, the British astronaut, was sent up for a six-month stretch on the HMP International Space Station. 
Uh, can't remember what he got slammed for. I think being scientific in charge of a rocket or something. And since he got back, he has not gone on a single Bonnie and Clyde-style crime spree. Clean as a whistle. Got his life back on track. Point proof. Your emails now. This came in from Jamie Thompson, um, who says, Dear Andy, I hope you're well. I'm fine. Thanks for that detail. Um, I'd like you to know that I went up to the hideaway in Streatham to buy some tickets for your fundraising thing. That thing, let me flesh out the details, is a fundraising gig this coming Tuesday, the 27th, featuring me, Jeremy Hardy, Sophie Hagen and Johnny and the Baptists. Um, uh, Jamie continues, uh, the lady in the box office said, oh, you mean the event with Mark Zuckerberg? <laughs> I smiled and said yes. Well, that's great. I, I'm now I'm being mistaken for the founder of Facebook and one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world. I don't know if that, I'm just be flattered or insulted. I mean, I have never overlooked the spread of hate speech on an internet platform that I may have uh, uh, may have had control of. I'm not saying Mark Zuckerberg has. I'm just saying I haven't. Uh, but other I'm other than beginning with Z. I'm not sure there are many similarities between Zuckerberg and I in the way we have conducted our commercial careers. But anyway, uh, <laughs> do come to that gig. It should be terrific on Tuesday night to raise uh, money for uh, my children's primary schools, specifically to help disadvantaged children from the school go on the school camp. That is Tuesday night at the wonderful Hideaway Club in Streatham. Uh, we've overrun, as as ever. Um, but a quick word on the cricket, Anuvab. Um, India lost the final of the Champions Trophy to Pakistan, after which 15 people were arrested for celebrate, in India for celebrating Pakistan's victory on charges of sedition. <laughs> sedition charges. Now, sedition is conduct or speech inciting people to rebel against the authority of a state or monarch. I mean, that shows how seriously cricket is taken in India, that celebrating another team winning is seen to undermine the entire existence of India as a nation. Well, you know, that plays right into our concept of fair play, you know, <laughs> that you, you can fairly support any side as long as you're willing to go to jail afterwards. <laughs> you know, that's, that's sort of the worldview that we work with. I don't know how it is in the West. I don't, know, I don't know what sportsmanship means in the West. But to us, it means as long as you're supporting us, you're, you have a sportsman spirit. <laughs> that's basically what that means. I have a slightly different problem, Andy. We were, we were sort of really convinced that we would win because, you know, you know, statistics, which I know that you're very famous for in cricket, you know, said that we were, what, the number one side, right, for the, in this format of the game in Pakistan were 40th out of eight, eight playing <laughs> nations. And, and, and so therefore we bought a lot of firecrackers. As a nation, we bought a lot of firecrackers because we were certain by eight that evening we'd be winning. <laughs> and then when we didn't, and we had this sort of, you know, massive, you know, Hellenic tragedy, you know, on our hands, a, a bunch of firecrackers just went off in some sort of existential crisis. <laughs> well, I mean, that, I guess because it... this was a nation uncertain of what to do with firecrackers. <laughs> so it's the first time where there were firecrackers out of bewilderment than celebration. Does a firecracker sound different when it is set off bewildered rather than happy? <laughs> there's a there's a tinge of sadness, Andy. There's a tinge of sadness. <laughs> well, as you said, this was a hugely unexpected victory, particularly because early in the tournament, uh, Pakistan, who'd come in as, uh, you know, basically either the rubbishest or the second rubbishest team in the tournament, 
and uh, they got absolutely thrashed by India in their first game. They looked likely tournament winners at that point, in the same way that a baguette looks like a suitable vehicle for riding the Grand National. But Pakistan cricket is one of the most gloriously baffling sporting phenomena in the universe. They did not just turn their Titanic round on a sixpence. They vaulted their Titanic clean over the iceberg in a triple-twisting double-pike-back somersault into the open ocean to victory. It was utterly sensational the way they thrashed India and England in the semi-final, but let's not talk about that. They totally obliterated India and, and England. Let's stop going on about England. They, they really, really hammered India. And there was a, a, a run-out in... Uh, in in the final, I mean, India were already losing, and there was this spectacular run-out, which ended up with both batsmen at the same end, which, for non-cricket aficionados listening to the bugle, is a bad thing. A very bad thing. He was 20 yards away from being where he was supposed to be. And I cannot understand how an Indian batsman can ever be run out in cricket, Anuva, because the way I see it, if you've survived to adulthood crossing roads in India... Yes. You should never be run out in cricket. You should know how to get from a place to another place about 20 yards in a short space of time without anything going wrong. How, how can an Indian cricketer be run out if they have made it to, to the age of 20? I think what happened by that point, Andy, is that we were already five down, right? And, and the, the players themselves, so well paid, the wealthiest cricketing playing nation in the world. They were so confused at their own loss and perhaps a little scared that they were not running towards the other wicket, Andy. They were running away from the stadium. <laughs> and like all our billionaires who seek refuge in London, they were hoping never to come out. They were hoping to run into the city of London, never to be found, like so many other great Indian fugitives. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's uh, Bugle. Next week, we'll have full exclusive coverage of the first uh, rugby union test match between the New Zealand All Blacks and the British and Irish Lions. Uh, it's, I mean, it's going to be tough, uh, Anuvab. I, I, I imagine you're not a massive rugby fan, but New Zealand have won 37 matches in a row in the stadium that the Lions are playing them in tomorrow morning as we record. This... As, a, as tasks go to try and beat New Zealand in New Zealand, as like pogo sticking your way to the top of Mount Everest. Not impossible, but very tricky indeed. We'll have full reports exclusively on that uh, next week. Anivab, uh, thanks very much once again for joining me from Mumbai. Delight as ever to have you on the show. I'll be back next week with uh, Tom Ballard and uh, a new a Bugle co-host, Tiffany Stevenson. The Bugle is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, made possible with great support from our founding sponsors, the Knight Foundation. Until next time, Buglers, goodbye. <laughs>